Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Ben, we once again find ourselves here um, with neither your wife nor Susan here to keep us in control. It it's the all male going to be the all male what should we call it the all male edition of the rational bro series? edition somebody voted for the bro money edition bro how about the broy man panel the mansplaining edition, edition? <laughs> no, well, the there will man- be no mansplaining on this panel <laughs> just can, so we're clear can you have mansplaining without women <laughs> oh that's <laughs> or, a good point or is it, or is it really just like talking <laughs> if, 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 tree falling in the forest <laughs> right <laughs> I think we're going to test this proposition. <laughs> Maybe we should call it the mansplaining edition. The mansplaining edition. All right. All right. Let's All right. go. Like Everybody it. talking, nobody listening. <laughs> it's like most weeks. <laughs> <sighs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the, you guessed it, the mansplaining edition. I'm Shane Harris. I what do you mean by mansplaining, Shane? <laughs> <laughs> ben, I get paid to explain things to people. Let me tell you how it works. Um, I am here in the Jungle Studio with Ben Wittes, as you know. Hi, Ben. Hi. And joining us also, senior fellow here at Brookings, Bill Galston. Hello, Bill. Hello, Shane. <laughs> special guest, Bill Galston. Special, special guest. Not so special. <laughs> <laughs> just, not, just scarce. Do <laughs> <laughs> a different thing. You'll do. <laughs> I'm not sure Bill knew entirely what he was in for until about I 20 seconds didn't. ago. <laughs> but I'm getting the picture Now you're trapped. Quickly. It's too late to sub you out for someone else. Um, uh, as listeners know, um, uh, Tamara is in Saudi Arabia. Yes, and Susan is out on maternity leave, still with a child. A yes, small child. so we are. Uh, uh, we are the. It is all male today. Yeah, that's true. Um, the trip is going well in Saudi. Have you heard? Uh, indeed. Okay. Yeah, glad to uh, hear it. Uh, I'm sure she will have a lot to say about it when she is out of. Uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia airspace. That's the best way to talk about Saudi Arabia was when you're no longer in it. All right. This week on the panel, Bob Mueller indicts a slew of Russians who interfered in the 2016 election. Can the president distinguish between the national interest and his own? (laughs) (laughs) What a silly question, Shane. Bill's going to take that on with some help from Ben, I'm sure. (laughs) And the school shooting in Florida brings students to the front line of the gun control debate. Um, Let's start with the indictments. Uh, I think fair to say last Friday uh, when these indictments dropped against 13 Russian individuals and three organizations – I certainly wasn't expecting them. I don't think anybody else was. So, so, so Bob Mueller hadn't called you up personally no. and said, Shane, I would like to leak the contents of my forthcoming indictment to I you? I know as much as people think that that's a routine thing that happens. They just – they have yet to call. They just don't – Bob, you don't call. You never call. You, you never call. You, you never, never have write. called. I wonder <laughs> if you ever will. Uh, but these kind of came out of a pull to the blue, obviously. Um, but I think what it, let's let's start with what I'll start. With, I, should, I should say I'll start with ask you guys to to chime in on this. The thing that most struck me immediately in reading them was 
uh, aside from the suddenness of, of the indictments, was that this is really the most detailed presentation by a government source and probably the most detailed presentation by any source that I've seen on the very specific ways that these Russian actors, these groups, these troll farms and then individuals interfered in the election. And I was really struck both by how it uh, their campaign begins in 2014, though obviously it picks up steam later uh, in 2016. And that they actually sent people to the United States to do some of the laying of the groundwork. Um, ben, I mean, did that strike did that strike you as well as as notable? And when, and now that we've had time, some time to ruminate on it, what do you think about the significance of that? So the detail is very significant, and the narrative elements of the indictment uh, are really interesting, both as a historical matter and as a legal matter. I guess there are a few things that. Uh, really jump out at me about the indictment. The first is uh, that for all the the president's and his defenders' efforts to describe it as a vindication, it has to actually be a very ominous sign. And the reason is that it is uh, a very detailed portrait of a small corner of the operation. That is, it is only the Russian side of the operation and only the non-governmental private sector uh, social media side. So there's no Russian government actors described. There's no hacking described. And if this is the level of detail that Mueller is able to put together about this one corner of it, think what he must know about the larger picture that he has not uh, talked about publicly yet. Uh, and I think that has to be a uh, you know, whatever, whatever the spin on Twitter and, and on Fox News has to be, uh, if you're a lawyer thinking about lo- looking at this as, as visibility into what the special counsel knows, uh, and I think you tweeted this, that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the big lesson of this indictment is that Bob Mueller knows a huge amount more than we do, so don't think you know what's going on. Right. And I think that's true if you're a defense lawyer, too. And if you're a defense lawyer with a major client in, the, in this, that's got to be a very scary proposition. Bill? You used an interesting phrase, Ben. You called it the non-governmental portion of the operation. Now, you know, speaking as an amateur, but a very interested one, I find it very difficult to believe that such a major operation occurred without the notice and support of the government, particularly given the closeness of the leader of this operation to Mr. Putin himself. Oh, and, ab- absolutely. And so, is, so in today's Russia, does the distinction between governmental and non-governmental do a lot of work? Well, mm-hmm. it, so in this case, so first of all, you're absolutely right. I'm not saying this was a private operation that, you know, just was a group of patriotic social media <laughs> right. caterers um, who, you know, who, you know, through their catering, catering operation, was just getting boring. You know, just decided to interfere in the U.S. election. I think we can, you can see what Adam Smith might call the hidden hand or the invisible hand of uh, Russian state action here. Uh, that said, uh, this is not the GRU, and it is not the FSB. And um, we know from 
uh, lots of other sources, including U.S. government statements, that there were two uh, government hacks of the DNC and Podesta, uh, and those were done by military mm -hmm, intelligence mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the FSB. And this indictment doesn't say anything about any of that. And so I think it is very fair to presume that this operation was done in conjunction with that activity. But the indictment is careful not to describe activity that is within the four corners of the actual government agencies of, this, of, of the Russian Federation. Um, and I think that's on purpose. Uh, I think that is being saved for a different day, if I had to guess, if, if I, you know, I, don't, I try not to do predictions about the Mueller investigation. But if I were going to do a prediction, the, the next major action that I'm expecting is the hacking indictment. And that will be, if, if I'm right, that will be about government actors. Um, so I didn't mean to say that there weren't government actors behind this. I just meant the activity described here is not activity by the government of the Russian Federation. Yeah, fair enough. The, the other thing that really jumped out at me about these indictments as an ominous sign for those who might get caught up in future action uh, by Mr. Mueller is the extraordinarily effective zone of secrecy and silence that he has created around his investigation. The fact that the people in this room who are unusually well-informed mm -hmm. were taken entirely by surprise, I think speaks, speaks volumes about what we can and can't presume about anything else that he's thinking about doing. Uh, uh, my guess is that the, uh, the White House, although perhaps a little bit more knowledgeable than the people in this room, about about what he's doing will be in for a series of future surprises about the actual indictments handed down their scope uh, and their detail yeah i think one thing one thing that did strike me about <clears throat> i think that's all true but there were some contours of, of the Mueller investigation that did seem familiar insofar as the internet research agency this organization run by this the russian caterer prigozhin who's very close to uh uh, Vladimir Putin, and when he's not running a catering operation, also runs a mercenary operation that's currently at work. It's, it's very Bonville. It's yeah, very Bonville. Yeah, the caterer. Well, mercenary. they've always they always say that a man, <laughs> the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Exactly. Right? Well, bingo. Don't <laughs> <laughs> um, quite mean that. <laughs> you can get through your stomach all kinds of ways, including <laughs> with knives. Uh, but it, but it, 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 we did, you know, have a sense, and we knew, we knew quite a bit actually about the Internet Research Agency uh, and things that it had. Done, like trying to influence um, the election and social media through trolls and whatnot. But what I was also struck by is, you know, they were clearly tracking these people as they are on the ground communicating. They can able they were able to go back through their communications for quite some time. We had no real sense that Russians were on the ground. We knew that they were trying to coordinate with people to set up Trump events and were sort of um, the forces behind some of these movements online. But it, to your point, Ben, it made me think that okay, if you've got contemporaneous, it looks like, communications of these people, both while they're sending people to the United States and talking about those operations afterwards, um, there is a whole uh, spectrum of, of communications with other people in the United States, presumably, that Mueller has access to. Long way of saying, I think that if there is some kind of 
smoking gun that shows collusion or more precisely conspiracy between the campaign and Russia, it seems much more likely to me today than it did before the indictments that Mueller would have access to that information. So particularly because of the very interesting legal theory that underlies the indictment. And one of the surprises of the indictment was the legal theory, which, you know, I think is really interesting that in all the discussion of how you might prosecute collusion, I haven't seen any article that uh, identified this particular legal theory, which turns out to have a really interesting pedigree. Um, and so Mueller, you know, is not accusing anybody of collusion in this indictment, but he is describing a conspiracy to deprive the United States by fraudulent means of its proper regulatory jurisdiction over a variety of things like foreign agents registration and, uh, you know, campaign finance contributions. And if this indictment has legs, and I think it does, I think it. We, we've done a little bit of research on this this week, and it fits pretty cleanly into a line of cases dating back to the 50s that are mostly IRS cases, but have a sort of similar, similar theory. Um, anybody who participated in this on the U.S. side or helped with it on the U.S. side is presumably guilty of this conspiracy or party to this conspiracy as well. And that means... Even the unwitting participants? No. Okay. You have to be a witting participant. But for example, imagine that you could show... Imagine that the next indictment shows that uh, information was being fed into this troll farm from material that the government agencies hacked, Right. And then imagine that you have knowing contacts between the distribution mechanisms and people on the U.S. side, which we know have happened, right? Because there were acknowledged contacts between Guccifer II and Roger Stone, if memory serves. That's right, isn't it? Uh, they, they, he, they have it in contact. Although I think Roger Stone says it, it essentially consisted of innocuous Twitter exchanges. Um, and there were certainly acknowledged correspondence, uh, Twitter DMs with Julian Assange, right? And Donald Trump Jr. And so you could imagine a situation where if people are knowingly participating in the U.S. side in this broader conspiracy to uh, deprive the United States of its proper regulatory jurisdiction, you can see from the text of this indictment the work that that idea could do in getting you across the Atlantic. So, Bill, I want to turn to you then on that a political question here. I mean, if taking Ben's description of the theory of the case, and let's, let's presume <clears throat> that some meaningful connection is made between the Trump campaign and this Russian operation kind of in the manner that Ben is describing – do you think that matters politically for the president? I mean, so we're going to talk about his, in the next segment, his reactions to this indictment, which were many and, and multifaceted. But, you know, if Mueller can persuasively say, okay, the following people in the campaign are guilty of participating in the conspiracy. I mean, I guess I asked this question more out of my own interest was that it seems like the American public has a very high threshold for what it's willing to tolerate right now, and that certainly there's kind of an immovable part of Trump's base mm -hmm. um, that doesn't see anything nefarious 
uh, to the extent that they even believe that there is a Russia story at all. But if you could demonstrably show these links, does that really change the politics of this and become a liability for him? Or will there be some people who you think just look at that and say, yes, so what? This is politics. There is a hard core of Trump support. Nobody knows exactly what its dimensions are, but it's at least 30% of the electorate and perhaps as high as 35. There is then a softer periphery, Mm -hmm. which amounts, as I monitor these things, to between 15 and 20% of the total. It makes a material difference whether he's on the high end or the low end. And I do think that people who are not impervious to reason and evidence, who have taken the president at his repeated word, there is no collusion. Has any phrase been more frequently repeated in his Twitter account than those than those four words? Right. Uh, if you know, if something that looks a lot like collusion is demonstrated beyond a reasonable doubt, I think that those people at the periphery will debit it to his account, mm-hmm. and that will have an effect uh, in both 2018 and if he lasts that long, 2020. Right. So those people on the periphery are not immune to facts that change the narrative or that contradict things that he said. Well, we've seen that yeah. because his report, his support has been variable within that range, and you can usually trace it to specific events or sequences of events. So let's talk about his tweets because that leads into, unless you have anything else you want to say about the indictments. Mm. So the president's tweets that then they're going to lead into the second segment here. Um, I think 13 times he tweeted about the Russia indictments. Was it that many? Was it one for every person indicted? (laughs) 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 Roughly in that neighborhood. A a baker's dozen of tweets. Just for good measure. Uh, And and as Bill points out, um, the phrase no collusion, no collusion was used repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the case, as Ben has well described here, there's no uh, allegation of collusion contained in this indictment, although it seems pretty foolish to assume that that it might not be, that that that, that could not possibly be something. There's no allegation about the Manson murder. Either. Well, exactly. You right. know, there, there, there's a lot of subjects that it's are not, not covered in this indictment. Right. But but the president has, you know, it has, has as he has before, has used an opportunity to say there's no collusion. But there was something, I think, quantitatively and qualitatively different uh, about this tweet storm. And You're being very diplomatic. Well, I'm, I'm leading into <laughs> Bill's description of it in the Wall Street Journal in a column that is uh, that is out now. Uh, you call it President Trump's out-of-control weekend Twitter storm, which you said has raised concerns to new heights, uh, particularly among European allies who no longer know what to believe. Uh, and you use this as an opportunity to get into the question of whether or not there is a 25th Amendment angle to what we're seeing here. I want to talk about the column and and what about it is that in these, these tweets, because it struck me and colleagues of mine, too, that he was especially... Um, uh, in deep on this subject over the weekend in a way that we just don't always see. So what about this particular tweet storm that you see as unique and that was prompting you to raise this 25th Amendment uh, option, which has come up from time to time? <laughs> well, I I saw this sequence of events as going to the core of national security concerns. Uh, I believe, and I say in my column, that Putin's Russia 
is an enemy of the United States and is acting in all sorts of ways as an enemy of the United States. It's not just a cast of mind, although with Mr. Putin there is that cast of mind, but it's also an organized strategy on many different fronts to undermine our interests, to undermine our alliances and relationships, and to undermine our institutions. Okay? And it's a comprehensive assault on America and things American. Uh, and the duty of every citizen, as we can see from the oath of naturalization that new citizens swear, is to protect the country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Surely what's expected of every citizen is expected of the president of the United States. But in this case, I saw you know, a kind of a blinding self-regard or self-centeredness that didn't allow him to call what's going on by its proper name. All he could see was its relationship to himself and his own sense of legitimacy, his own sense of vindication or the need for vindication. And the confusion between the self and the country is a mistake for any citizen, but it could be fatal for the person who occupies the Oval Office and needs to make judgments, including life and death judgments, about national security. And so I was driven very reluctantly you know, to consider questions of the president's basic fitness for the office that he occupies. And I observed in the course of a pained meditation on the 25th Amendment, which I don't expect to be invoked mm -hmm. you know, anytime soon, that although it was created, as far as I can tell, to deal with cases of you know, physical disability, like Woodrow Wilson's you know, uh, debilitating stroke, here we're talking about a psychological or characterological disability that makes it impossible for this president, apparently, to make a distinction that you would think is at the heart of his oath of office, but he clearly either understands the matter differently or is out of control, cannot control himself. And that's my great fear, yeah. that the Twitter storm, the Twitter storm was, you know, uh, was evidence of you know, of a sense of threat and need for vindication that is literally out of his control. And Ben, did you see that, that too? Because, and mindful of the fact that you've written and talked a lot about your view that Trump is not even capable of taking the oath of office. And so did you see more evidence of that coming up in this Twitter storm to the Russia indictments? So I, I was appalled by the Twitter storm. <clears throat> um, but I was actually a little surprised when I read your column that you saw it as sort of different in kind at some level from everything we've seen before from him. And I'm, I'm interested in, from your point of view, what made it so different as from pre-Trump tweet storm? I, it felt to me like kind of the way I expected him to react to this indictment. Uh... Well, you're right to detect a tone of of surprise, or at least the sense that this was different, not only quantitatively but qualitatively. 
I think it, you know, it had to do with the centrality of national security. Uh, it had to do with the fact that this coincided with the Munich Security Conference, which is <laughs> the single most important security-oriented gathering of West, senior Western officials every year, right? There was, there was no occasion where more people would be paying more attention. He not even just, chastised H.R. McMaster, who was speaking at exactly, the conference, exactly. for not saying enough in his defense. And, you know, and so it, it struck me that the combination of the quantity, the vehemence, the subject matter, and the occasion created something that I had to take note of in a new way. And Ben is absolutely right. I've been, I've tried very self-consciously and often painfully, you know, to maintain a moderate tone in my columns. I'm not eager to sow panic in the ranks, but I just felt I had to say something. And it seems to me that, it, that another aspect of this that I think reinforces what you're saying about the way that he's viewing the personal interest perhaps over the national one, which this really struck me in a number of colleagues, I think, too, was his tweet about uh, the FBI's acknowledgement that it had failed to follow up on a lead <clears throat> about the Florida high school shooter and saying they're spending too much time at the FBI trying to prove I colluded with Russia, therefore they missed this. I mean, that was, I mean, even as these tweets go, that was really quite astonishing. Well, so I would like, so on that, I think I can, you know, break a little bit of news here and say that actually Trump is right. The FBI only handles one investigation at a time. That's why it's the Federal Bureau of Investigation, mm. singular, not Federal Bureau of Investigation. And there's only one investigation. There's only one investigation. And so if they're doing the Russia investigation, that means that, you know, your school shooting's not going to get, like, investigated. Uh, I heard a senior FBI official offer a very different account. <laughs> and, you know, and Perhaps that's because he wasn't joking. Uh, and you know that the explanation i heard was that the the people who are focusing on russia have absolutely nothing to do with the people correct who, who are focusing on on the sorts of questions that the florida shooting raised and that the idea that personnel are being diverted that attention is being diverted that energy and resources are being diverted just contrary to fact one one thing and it, and it to kind of just stay on that particular tweet for a second because it stuck out to me mm -hmm. among all of them is is almost um uniquely self-centered yes uh and it didn't seem like at least it, maybe there's just because we're just drowned out by so much other news that's going on right now there didn't seem to be a lot of focus i guess in the commentating class on that and it did make me wonder am i just overreading and, and a bit too sensitive to the reaction or have people just come to the point where we almost just disregard his tweets so, I mean, even ones that are so you know really just frankly over the line. I mean, that was really an, an uncalled for uh, accusation against the FBI and, and must have rung, uh, uh, been devastating, frankly, to people who were directly affected by what happened. Yeah. So uh, a couple things. First of all, um, just to, on, on a serious note, to amplify the point that Bill made, um, there is actually a national security division of the FBI 
doesn't handle school shootings. It handles things like the Russia investigation, right? And then there are uh, normal criminal investigations that include things like routing threat information to, uh, you know, field offices. And these are entirely separate worlds within an organization that employs tens of thousands of people. So the idea of distraction is actually not just not just as Bill said, factually erroneous. It's it's absurd. Um, there is one group of people that really did notice that tweet, and um, and I know about this only because I was on the set at um, of Morning Joe when Mika Brzezinski read uh, five or six or seven tweets by kids who were in that school uh, at the time about the president's Russia tweet. And they were amazingly offended um, by precisely the issue that you guys are talking about, which is that he managed to take a school shooting that was about them getting shot at and make it about him and his legal problems. And one group of people who really did notice that <laughs> was the victims yeah. um, or the the near victims uh, uh, at 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 that school in Florida. Well, that's a, a perfect segue to talk about this third segment. Um, <clears throat> uh, in the wake of this school shooting, I mean, there were the sadly predictable uh, questions of, will this be any different? Will we now finally have a discussion about uh, gun control or have a, have a, a full-throated debate about this? But something is different about the particular response to this shooting. And it is, of course, that so many of the students both at the school where the event occurred, but also throughout the state, and I think now it's becoming clearer throughout the country, are taking this opportunity uh, at an age of around 16, when I think most people start to become politically aware and mature, to uh, exert their First Amendment right and are now taking an active role as advocates uh, in this for, for, for gun control and restrictions, or at least to be having a debate that doesn't wait until till some postponed moment when it's all faded from public consciousness. So, I mean, Ben, it seems like that the addition of these young people uh, who are really out in droves today and in stage to walk out in schools around Florida has changed the the environment in which this security discussion is happening. Yes, it is really rare that you see the contours of a security debate change overnight particularly one where the basic contours uh, and political fault lines have been known for a long time and have uh, of, have had a very stable since the repeal of the assault weapons ban or the lapsing of the assault weapons ban, a really stable equilibrium, which is that, you know, uh, nobody can get anything through Congress restricting anything related to firearms. Um, and what changed about that was that a group of these students start speaking for themselves rather than uh, being spoken for by politicians and activists. And they are talking about threat to them. And there is nothing quite like people actually describing their threat environment uh, in order that makes you that makes a political system take notice uh, and and 
potentially shift gears. I don't know if this is a situation where it'll shift gears for two weeks or if this is actually a change in the equilibrium. I'd be interested in Bill's sense of that. Um, my, But I do think it is a pretty interesting just change in the texture of the debate when, you know, to use a bad pun on the name of this show, when a large number of people suddenly affected by something say, hey, wait a minute, your vision of security isn't rational here, right? Mm -hmm. And and uh, in your vision of, of security goods, I get shot. And there's a bunch of kids who are, you know, some of them are, are more articulate and more eloquent spokesmen for this view than others, and some of them are uh, uh, a, a little bit less coherent, but they're extremely passionate and they're speaking from a place of genuinely affected, uh, 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 affected by circumstance, and lots of people are listening to them, and that's different from the the different the from the parents at Sandy Hook, uh, or much less the children at Sandy Hook, who were too young to speak for themselves. Uh, and I think that is a change in the in the sort of fabric of the conversation. Yeah, Bill, talk about that and whether you think that that is going to be a sustainable uh, dimension in the gun debate now. Well, whether it's sustainable depends in part on whether the students choose to sustain it. Right. There, you know, there is a very nitty-gritty operational piece to all of this. And a spike of outrage is not going to be as effective in the long run as sustained organization. You know, can the students figure out how to create a, nor uh, a national organization with chapters in every state and every school district? Mm -hmm. uh, given modern means of communication, which... For these, for kids of this age, is not just a second language, but arguably their first Primary. language. Uh, if if someone with you know precocious vision comes up with a plan of organization that genuinely creates a powerful, unified, collected, but ramified voice through the federal through our federal system, that could be that could be a game changer. So that's question number one. Is this a spike of outrage or is it the prelude to a real organizational shift? Uh, the, the, second, the second question is if the contours of the debate have shifted, by how much? I think it's significant that the sorts of measures that are being discussed right now are very much at the periphery of the issue and don't touch its core. Uh, and the sorts of measures being discussed are things that the National Rifle Association, for example, has indicated at least in principle it could live with a version of. So it's not as though the power of their veto has been weakened or let, let alone nullified. Uh, here's, the third, here's the third question that really interests me, just analytically. Uh, if you look at why we've been in this stable but highly suboptimal equilibrium that Ben just described since the lapse of the assault weapons ban. Uh, the answer is that 15% of the population who are prepared to make this a voting issue trump, so to speak, the remainder of the population that's on the other side, but not passionately so. So it's not just numbers, it's passion. 
Will this have the effect of creating an equally passionate minority in favor of altering the status quo that is prepared to tell elected representatives, this is a voting issue for us. This isn't just a nice thing to do when you get around to it. This is something we're going to hold you accountable for, and we will vote against you. We will back primary opponents uh, who are willing to take a more aggressive stance on this issue unless you pay attention to us. At that point, the center of the gravity, center of gravity of this of this debate will have been shifted very significantly. Which makes me wonder if along with this, <clears throat> you're going to hear about these young people talking about the need to register to vote, vote when you're 18. I mean, really putting you know, a focus on that as saying this is how you're going to get engaged in this because I think it would be very easy for politicians to just look at the the demographic trends and numbers and most people that age when they're 18-year-olds 18, 18 don't really vote and are pretty disengaged and to, and to at least gamble that you might be able to write them off. But they all have parents. They all have parents. They all have parents. Yep. And uh, I have noticed in other debates that if members of the family – Go to another member of the family and say, "Hey, yeah, uh, that can have a big effect." It's interesting. It's it's happened just within my own family. I, I was talking with, uh, 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 not giving too much away, but with my brother about this, who's a fairly you know died in the wool Second Amendment absolutist, and um, this event has caused uh, my sister in law, his wife, to very much change her position on. Uh, the issues and his now she is now lobbying him to mm -hmm, do the same. Exactly. So it started right there, and they have a daughter who is eighteen. She's a freshman right. in college, but it's sort of all the ingredients are right there. And of course, the question that she asked when this happened was, "What if that was our child?" So the other variable here is that you know when you're when you're building toward a wave election, and one possibility is that we are building toward a wave election. Um, there are these things that catalyze relatively small numbers of, of marginal voters to be very energized. And those are actually the differences between waves that crest in big ways and waves that kind of die, right? Is when there's, when there's some issue or constellation of issues that really push uh, some number of marginal voters to be more involved rather than less, to be more certain to vote than not. And the idea that you could have a, a, a X percent marginal increase in 18-year-olds who vote rather than not in certain parts of the country is not an in, uh, insignific insignificant potential piece of an off-year election uh, majority, right? right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's an interesting presidential dimension to this, to close that particular loop. Uh, I think the president, at least in the early going, has been somewhat more aware of the potential downside of this issue for him and his party than a lot of members of his party have been. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see whether a now familiar cycle repeats itself. You know, he's making conciliatory nose, noises in the early going, maybe a bump stock ban, you know, ratcheting up on, on, on background checks and clearances and things, things of that sort, talking with 
talking with parents, talking with kids. Now, what's going to happen when the more orthodox members of his party on this issue, including the hardliners on his own staff, start to start to pull in the other direction? Mm -hmm. Will he resist? Or will he do what he's done in every single contested case up to now, just go along with the hardliners? Uh, because if he goes along with the hardliners and doesn't provide any cover for more accommodating policies for other members of his party who might be inclined to go along, if he would give them cover, then nothing's going to change. And not, I know it's dangerous to make predictions, but <clears throat> as a coda to that, do you think he's likely to to change, or is it? Do you think the hardliners will eventually win out? If history is a guide, I don't know. Uh, it's clear that when it came to health care and when it came to immigration, the hardliners closed ranks, uh, and they were able to mobilize support from outside the White House, bring it into the White House, and block whatever more compromise and accommodation might have been possible. And uh, uh, I, th I think if they're listening to any political advisors at all, uh, they won't pull that ploy a third time in a row. But who knows, right? Because uh, what is the NRA going to do? Is it going to make nice in public and play hardball in private? Stay tuned. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, what's your object? So my object lesson is the word fucked, which has <laughs> this morning appeared on Lawfare for the first time. In the lead of This is the English word. This isn't like some other word that just sounds like that. No, I'm actually okay. sort of joking. This it, is not like a resort in Thailand. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, we're not, exactly. we're not talking about Phuket. We're talking about the Anglo-Saxon uh, um, fucked, um, which has never appeared on Lawfare, us being a family newspaper, until today when... <laughs> which family is that? <laughs> Maybe the Wittes family, but I can't think of another one. When Standards the, are sliding, then. When the great Bobby Chesney and Danielle Zitron published a, a really remarkable essay that I think you all should read. It is terrifying, and it begins with a quotation, we are truly fucked. Um, and it is about deep fakes, um, which is started uh, and is already technologically being used in the porn industry. Um, oh, and yeah. um, a deep is, fake yeah. is the ability to superimpose Hits. one person's yes. face yes. on yes. somebody else's body and to do it in a convincing fashion. Uh, and there is an uh, active group of hackers who and developers who are developing mostly for porn purposes the ability to make increasingly convincing deep fakes and have even built an app so that you can do it yourself. Um, and as Julian Sanchez, the, the Cato Institute uh, scholar, uh, has been sounding the alarm about this, the uh, really scary aspect of this is less about porn, though that that's going to be awful, than it is about uh, fake news. Uh, and so Bobby and, um, and Danielle have done a 
kind of preliminary legal discussion of the sort of world of national security in the land in 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 a world in which deep fakes are convincing and uh and available and doable and it is not a pretty picture and it is not clear how and their argument is it's literally it, not a pretty it picture it is really not a pretty picture and it is not clear how you remediate it and they identify a whole series of possible environments in which uh, you could use uh, such a thing. And do we mean like superimposing like my face on someone else and making it look like I'm saying something on TV fake or, press or making com- like fake- Washington Post website look like it published something? Uh, well, no. I mean making Shane Harris look like he said something, making, uh, for example, uh, a, uh, a fake war crime in a combat zone, oh. uh, you know, you know, we we had uh, a major uh, set of riots around the world because of a of a, a, a you know an allegation that the United States had flushed a Koran down the toilet. Right? Um, what if you could produce uh, mm-hmm. a video of a U.S. soldier flushing the Koran down the toilet, or maybe of David Petraeus doing it? Right. Um, uh, of course, in these days of environmentally correct toilets, they're not strong enough to do it. So the allegation was that's absurd on its face. Yes, I think there are many people around <laughs> the world who wouldn't pa- wouldn't be detained by by that. Um, and they do. It, it is a genuinely scary piece, and it is scary partly because it is entirely sober and uh, and you know, sort of non-alarmist, but this is a problem that is coming. It's coming very soon. Uh, The technology is getting very good. And uh, we have uh, no obvious solution to it. Uh, It will be, you know, the next time the Internet Research Agency wants to slime Hillary Clinton, it will be by having videos of Hillary Clinton saying all kinds of things. All right. I look forward to that or whatever news story I may be presenting to you in the future. Um, For my object, I'm going to flag uh, something that relates to the discussion we had last week on security clearances. Uh, Just to flick at this, on Friday, uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly at the White House put out a five-page document on the new policy about security clearances and particularly these interim clearances that we talked about on the show last week, which are kind of a thing, but not really. Uh, insofar as so many people have them at the White House, Kelly decided to uh, cancel them for uh, some group of staffers, namely people who uh, uh, whose uh, investigations were still pending as of June 1st, 2017 or before, which we are pretty sure includes one Jared Kushner. Uh, so it remains to be seen how Jared's going to continue doing the work uh, that entails his necessary access to classified information, presuming he is actually doing the work and it's not just that they're claiming he is, uh, past Friday when that clearance runs out. So it's an interesting document uh, both to read from the standpoint of uh, the political intent that I think was behind it, which was to try and solve the Jared Kushner problem and respond to the Rob Porter issue, which we discussed last week. But also just as a security document, it's interesting to see the White House Chief of Staff trying to lay out how he wants to handle the security clearance issuance process going forward. Uh, And we will revisit this another time. But safe to say it shifts a lot of the burden to the FBI and tries to shift it away from the White House to make the final decision on should actually 
who should actually make uh, the decision on who has a clearance. Mm. So it makes for a very interesting reading. Subtext, Chris Ray, you fire Jared mm. and take the president's anger for it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, uh, as the ringer on this show, if the president can declassify documents at will, can he award security clearances at will? Yes, yes. he can. He has the absolute authority to That's do so. That's what I thought. So, you know, what are the, what are the odds that he's going to allow his beloved son-in-law to be deprived of access to these documents? Seems pretty low. <laughs> so, so I think the the answer to that is probably pretty low. But I also think the uh, the the discussion is important anyway. I agree for the simple reason that it clarifies political accountability for Jared's access. Right, as long as there is an ongoing process, the White House does, with some legitimacy, get to say uh, it's in the middle of a process. He's going through the usual. Again, we all kind of know that isn't true. Uh, that there's something very irregular about the process, but it is. It has a certain superficial plausibility. The moment that process ends and says he's, you know, he should not be cleared, and the president clears him anyway, that's a that's a very different picture, I think, optically and and substantively. I could see it happening somewhere along the following scenario: Friday comes, the White House doesn't respond to whether or not Jared still has a security clearance or not. We go through some days of being in this land of ambiguity. Uh, and then perhaps at some point, Jared and Ivanka just say they're leaving the White House and going back to New York. I mean, there's 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 been a lot of speculation about them leaving anyway. Uh, so you could do that without having to trigger the I think what I think would be the politically very problematic idea mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. president giving mm-hmm. a clearance to this person who very obviously cannot obtain one otherwise. So fair enough. All right, and I guess that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, I have nothing to show okay. <laughs> and nothing to tell. <laughs> you, you've shown and told so much. Thank you for being here, Bill. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the webs. Somewhere. Somewhere, somewhere on the internet. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please make sure to leave us a rating and a review. Uh, it really helps. And we've been looking at our numbers. We're doing great. So many more new people are finding out about the podcast Thanks, no doubt, in large part to all of you who are spreading the word and helping us by leaving those ratings and reviews. We really appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and the Man Tweets. You don't like that? I'm thinking about it. The Man Tweets. I'm trying to tie it all back together. Tie it all back together? Hmm. I've done better. Although... If he did have Donald a band, and the men. Donald and the men. <laughs> just right in his, just simple. I Donald and the men. Yo, know, my my favorites in that genre genre came at the end of Car Talk. <laughs> you know, their show their chauffeur, you know, the Russian the Russian emigre peek, peek off and, and drop, drop off. off. Right. <laughs> Ooh, I think he was indicted by Bob Mueller. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if Donald Trump did have a band called The Man Tweet, Sophia Yan would play backup on piano. Or maybe we just kick Donald Trump out and then she could be the band. Yeah. She could have a back. She Her backup singers could be The Man Tweets. Sophia and The Mans. Sophia and The Mans. Um, special thanks to Bill Galston. Bill, thanks for joining us. We, we put <laughs> my, you through a my lot. My pleasure, I think. <laughs> I hope your reputation survives it. 
On behalf of Bill and my good friend Ben Wittes, I'm Jane Harris. We'll talk to you next week when more rational people will be back in charge of this podcast. Bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.